here we are this morning with the super talented Michael Zam, Emmy-nominated writer behind the hit TV series Feud, Bet and Joan, which you may have seen. That because- would be Betty. Bet is Bet Midler, Betty Davis. Oh my God! Is is that <laughs> that is correct? I, so I've been saying that wrong my entire life. You know, I don't know how how have you gotten through Des, this I, far? I, I I I don't know. But Bette Midler is actually named after Betty Davis, but her mother also pronounced it the way you did. Really, and that's why she's Bette Davis, uh, Bette Midler instead of Bette. Okay, Betty Midler. So, didn't expect this is how we'd start no, the conversation. I, I, did, did you? I, I, I but I I feel very educated <laughs> straight from the get go, so that's good. But I was wondering if I could start with a philosophical type question in relation to writing, which is something uh, sure. I've asked a couple of people before, is what do you think about the concept of being born to be a writer? Oh, that's actually a really good question. Man, it's early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's one of those questions. I'm, I'm a kind of a believer in the mix of nature-nurture, because I was always from very early on probably like, overly observant and looking behind, you know, the doors and under the rugs and stuff like that. But I do think nurture had a lot to do with it. So and I think part of it is that I grew up in a family where my parents liked to try not to tell us the truth a lot. Yes, they were always telling stories. And somehow I always could tell they must have had tells. So did, did you find out Santa wasn't real at a very early age? Uh, well, being a Jew, I, it never really came up. But <laughs> okay, no, but um, but you know, I was uh, for some reason I was always I don't know, I, I don't remember if I like found out something that I wasn't supposed to. But I have to say something about that. I always wanted to know what the truth was, like what's really going on. I was I wasn't even one of, I wasn't one of those kids who like accepted everything that was told to me, and I I don't know when that came in. But I think that's one of the things that really made me want to write was I wanted to know what's the, you know, like what's really the truth in, in my family. And then ultimately, that's what was always interesting to me about stories, like what's not being said, what's not, you know, what's right under, what's in between the lines. Okay. Can you remember what the first thing you ever wrote was? Like, was it a creative piece for school or? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I did actually write, you know, pretty early. The earliest thing I can remember was writing a really and this is I had a friend who's the one who told me about people who did things other than actors you know he brought in some book he'd gotten in the library that talked about you know cinematographers though probably that word probably was really big for me but that people actually wrote them and um, I remember we would sit around and write sketches you know based on like sketch shows that we'd watch on tv a lot so I guess that was probably the beginning but then I I had a couple of playbooks, you know, books of plays. And so I used that format to try to write a screenplay when I was a really little kid based on my very fascinating experiences as a nine-year-old at summer camp. (laughs) So, Um, Do you still have that? No, thank God. I'll tell you what I do have, though, I found recently. I had for a class assignment, I don't know what the assignment was. I think it was a book report. I did a novelization of Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. Oh, wow. But that was my great book that I read for class. And so I wrote a sequel to it. And that was the first treatment I ever wrote. Pure coincidence. I don't know how I thought of this, but The Bride of Frankenstein had been on television. And I wrote down what every scene was. So I knew how it would work somehow. And then I sort of used that to copy to create a sequel to Young Frankenstein called The Mistress of Frankenstein. And I know you're waiting for that in your theaters. Mel, I know you're like 94 and you're looking for ideas. <laughs> I was going to say, did you ever show it to Mel? No, 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 but he was, you know, he was one of my heroes when I was a kid and, you know, still, he's amazing. Okay. It, it, it's interesting though, because I, I, 
suppose people might primarily know you as a drama writer these days, but it was comedy was kind of where, where you started yeah, off. Yeah, right? yeah. Actually, the early things I mostly wrote were comedies. Like, even as a kid, I used to. Did you have Mad Magazine here? Well, p- people would know it. Know yeah. it, yeah. So I used to do like my own Mad Magazines. And of course, the things I loved the most were the spoofs of the movies and, right. and television shows. <clears throat> and um, so I used to try to do that, but I couldn't draw. But yeah, comedy, that was kind of, that was really the thing that really drew me in. It was a comedy series that first really inspired me to write seriously, which was um, a show called The Mary Tyler Moore Show. That's the first time I really recognized that everything was written and how it came together. But then like the first things I wrote were all like real comedies. I actually met my writing partner many, many years ago in college when I brought a play into a um, playwriting group and we were like the two comedy guys and that's how we kind of hit it off because we both had the same sort of sense of humor and, and, and at that time was it mostly kind of comedy plays or was there some tv and film stuff as well not or? so much tv but it was no i mostly thought mostly about film i mean i did a little tried a little tv but it was really film and theater I did film, but what made me try to do theater was because when I was in film school, the equipment was really old and poor. Um, we used to use these Filmo cameras from World War II that you had a um, twist with a doorknob. Oh, wind them. The yeah, wind, wind them with a doorknob. Well. Yeah, and it was fun, but it was you know it would take you you know five days to get like a two minute thing, and that was okay. But I was I wanted more, so I that's why I started writing plays. So, and what what do you think? you might have learned from playwriting that you were able to move into the kind of the screenplays or the TV writing? Oh, you know, character. It's really about character. You know, character arcs and story needing to start somewhere, conflict and going somewhere. So I think those basic skills, I actually think there are differences between, in general, between playwriting and, you know, film and TV writing. You know, obviously, I mean, now plays are much more cinematic, you know, the way they jump around and, you know, you don't need sets to move things. And, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know that so much. So I'd write these long scenes. But actually, when I was a kid, TV had long scenes. If You know, things like American television shows, like those Norman Lear shows, like All in the Family and Maud. Usually they'd have, it almost all took place in the same room. So I guess that's sort of what I thought. But then the idea of being able to not be you know constricted by that was really interesting to me. yeah no it, it, it is funny about the way the pace of tv has changed so much of it. Oh, i was channel hopping the other night and caught an episode of murder she wrote it was oh, almost yeah. like watching a play people would just stand there in the one shot and deliver exposition for two yeah. or three minutes at a time which well oh, yeah i could i mean who done it in, in 44 minutes that's tough you know, <laughs> if you want like, a lot of suspects yeah. but yeah no that's all changed i remember if i ever see anything particularly a drama show from the 70s, if I catch something, it seems really slow and so different and so linear. You know, one of the great breakthroughs in television now is um, how novelistic they are. And so they jump around a little bit more like we do in our dreams and in our thoughts. And I find that fascinating. Is is that kind of serialized form of uh, of storytelling something that you prefer to kind of the the more procedural or linear kind of approach? It depends. I think everything depends on what it needs to be. I like both. I actually, yeah, I actually like both a lot. I do sometimes like the jump around. It keeps me on my toes like as an audience member I don't become too complacent when something but I don't but I think it bec- it can become a gimmick if you're just doing it to do it as long as it's organic to the material I think it's great but what's great is it's now a tool in as a way to tell a story where before 
you know, the note you probably would have gotten would be like, nah, audiences aren't going to follow this. Now audiences definitely follow it. Do, do you think there's a different approach, say, between writing something that is a serialized network show as opposed to something that people are going to be binge-watching, like, on Netflix? Like, uh, Somewhat. I think they've gotten a lot closer than they used to be. I think an episodic network show would feel different. You know, something very procedural along the lines of a law and order or a CSI. Yeah. Um, but even if you notice, like even the best, the really, really good procedurals outside of those are also serialized on some level. You know, shows like The Good Wife were like that. And I thought that was a beautiful mix of the two. I, m- I remember somebody describing The Good Wife to me as a, a stealth procedural show, which is... Mm. Uh, yeah, like that's a, a great accurate. description. Yeah, That's a beautiful description. So just, just going back a little bit to, to how, how things started for you, when did the shift from comedy into drama writing, writing kind of happen? Um, that's a great question. You know, it's funny. I, I, I sort of have a memory now of wanting to write some drama, like, and then it coming across kind of funny and then thinking, oh, I'm bad at this. <laughs> I'm just bad. But when my writing partner and I wrote the screenplay, Best Actress, that eventually became, you know, got morphed into Feud, Betty and Joan, you know, we sort of thought that, we, we thought it was like a comedy drama, like it was a drama, but we also really wanted it to be funny and hopefully some of it was. So it didn't seem like that big a shift to us. I think the difference was, as writing, as I wrote more and more, I realized I didn't need to write to the joke so much. I had written um, the book for a musical, an off-Broadway musical, around the same time. And when I, when I think about it now, I realize that I was working too hard to make too much of it funny. When I've done some rewriting work on that for future productions, I've definitely cut back on that. And I think the jokes work better as a result. And I think the it becomes more moving as a result. Okay. W- would you say, because uh, say with Feud, mm-hmm. um, you, you were also working with Ryan Murphy, who's like w- one of the biggest kind of showrunners in, in the in the TV industry today. Were there any particular nuggets of wisdom that he passed on or tricks of the trade that you thought, that's really interesting, we haven't kind of done that before? I think or, it's just, no, I think it was just uh, from watching his work. And I think the way in which they... You know, he and um, Tim Muneer were the ones who really pretty much laid it out as the eight episode, you know, who really, you know, opened opened up our screenplay in that way. So I think it was a learning experience just really seeing how something morphed like that, because I hadn't done that before. Mm-hmm. And I was, that was very impressive to me and very exciting. And the way in which, what I really learned from that was the idea of how episodes can be thematic but and or you have their own arcs necessary, even in the longer form. And I, uh, so it was, I mean, the whole thing was a learning experience. Is that kind of role, the position that Ryan Murphy's gotten himself into, is that something that you would aspire to kind of career-wise or not? Or? Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, of course, who doesn't want to be able to walk into a room and say, I want to do this. And they're like, okay, you know, talk to you later. Um, so that type of freedom would be amazingly wonderful. But no, I don't, I don't, I, I don't I don't have that type of reach and ambition. I really love I love writing. I love the idea of being with other writers and and you know the whole I love you know riffing on the story and really making something work. And I love the collaborative experience as well. I mean, I, I like you know it's a, who who doesn't want to have as much control as they want. But I don't know. I don't I don't necessarily feel that that's my what I want. I'm really. I just really want to write really terrific things that I'm really engaged with and with people I like 
yeah. ideally, and just keep learning and having fun. You know, that's a lot. That's a lot. One of the things that you had said to me before was, mm-hmm. in, in terms of the kind of stories that you like to tell, there seems to be a preference towards real-life people, yeah, stories about that. real people. I love that. And also in the limited form mm-hmm. rather than a kind of ongoing returnable yeah. series. You- I, I like ongoing, but, um, you know, the limit, you know, I was, screenwriting was what I thought I would really do. So I'd really studied that form. So the idea of something having an end that I can see really gives me something to work towards. And I think... Create- is, is, is that one of the key things for you is then the fact that you can start it middle-ish and end-ish kind of on your own terms? Yeah, and that's not like- just like laziness. It's the idea of... Um, it creates an urgency in the character's need to get from one place, you know, for where where the character needs inevitably to go. And and I love that. I love that that idea that something needs to go somewhere. And not that it doesn't now in, in longer series. There is that sense that you do have, need to have some sense of where it's going and characters do need to have bigger arcs. But but yeah, but that's actually, you know, but in the limited series, I can see it. But I do like the long form, you know, the ongoing as well. But Really, in fact, I like it a lot, but there is really something in the limited series that, you know, reminds me of, you know, being able to think in terms of novels, which was the other thing I'd loved as a kid, and, besides and, films and, and TV. Certainly, I think in, in recent years, the limited form has really come back into vogue in, in a big way, because as much as people like binging 80 episodes or something or whatever, there is also that nice kind oh, of thing yeah. of I can get this done in eight or nine or, or, or whatever it's so it is. funny how you even say let's get it done because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there is that you know we all have that thing like ah I want to be I want to be part of the zeitgeist and I, I'm just like you know I'm 20 episodes behind <laughs> you know the I know you almost feel like you're, you're terrified to go on Twitter just in case like oh you know. well you know the whole Game of Thrones thing you know I came to that late and I basically watched um, every all every episode within like three months, and while I was on deadline, so that would become like my treat. You know, it's like okay, you got that done. Now you can watch an episode, and um, and I my whole goal was to get to the last episode when the world was going to watch the last episode, <laughs> and I missed it by like a day. Well, a day, so I stayed a day, away. A day is not too not bad, too bad. Not too bad. And and where where did you land on the ending? Were you pro or con, or were you happy or sad or? Uh, the ending wasn't as strong as I wanted it to be, but you know that show is such a major achievement. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I talk about something I learned so much of their their use of cliffhangers and interweaving of stories and just the stakes, how high the stakes are all the time. Yeah, was I mean, like phenomenal. Having audiences invest so hugely in characters and then just wiping them out in, in yeah, very exactly. Form, yeah, yeah, they're fearless. They yeah. were fearless, and I really love that. And I, I just think in the last, you know, the last part of the show, they kind of changed and kept changing and breaking the rules of their own show a little bit. And I think that's why. I think to me, that's some of the key of why it wasn't as strong. Yeah, I, I remember somebody said to me in, in the last season and a half of the show, the characters seemed to have discovered how to fast travel. Yeah, you know, yeah, which was like, uh, you know, kind of, yeah, and then you know, you can kill a dragon, you can't kill a dragon. You know, there were some yeah. of those rules, but. Yeah, well, I understand. I, you know, I, I, I know that what that feeling must have been like when you're in, at the end. And no matter what you did, people would probably would have been a little frustrated. Yeah. But you know, I have to say, even if it wasn't, 
you know, the best, the peak, peak, peak of Game of Thrones. I still thought it was one of the best shows of the season. Our expectations were so high. I, 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 th- I think that's the thing. It's, it's like a place where one or two shows in the past have gotten to, maybe like Lost, where you're constantly involving this mystery mm-hmm. and you've got people invested all over the world and there are so many different theories and people have their own favorite characters and things they want to happen that it is literally impossible yeah. to please everybody at the end yeah, of Yeah, I it. think that's true. Um, you don't get that so much in a six-episode thing. <laughs> No. no. No, it's like, oh my God, is Betty going to, <laughs> what's going to happen? But which is great too. You know, it's all yeah. different. It's all a different thing. Can we talk maybe a little bit about some of the projects you're working on at the moment? So say yeah, sure. there, there is a project coming up about Vivian Lee that I know you're Yeah, in. and that was actually one of the Game of Thrones things because um, I'm, we're, my writing partner Jaffe and I are working with Natalie Dormer who'll be um, cool. playing Vivian Lee. And one of the things I, that really got me to sit down and watch it was I really wanted to know, you know, to see this. And, you know, I was really impressed and it really got me involved. Yes, I'm really thrilled to be doing this project. And Vivian is an amazing, amazing character. Is, is there something particular in her story or in her character that like might, really made you want to tell this? Or? Yeah. Well, you know, again, she was somebody who on the outside was this, you know, was one thing, and then, but internally struggled with so many things. I mean, she was what we would probably call bipolar today, right. you know, before they had the medications and stuff like that. But she was also, and so I think some people know that. And there's, um, but I don't know if people also remember that off screen, she was actually amazingly smart, really clever, a real raconteur. And, um, and you know, in a lot of ways, you know, she and Olivier, you know, she was with Olivier all those years. Um, they had this really fascinating relationship that was both incredibly romantic and, and very much, um, but also very much tied up in the work they did together and apart. So it was one of these fascinating relationships that I think was based on both, you know, love, you know, and a desire and a passion. But and some of that passion also was com- competition. I suppose they would have been almost one of the first kind of star couples. In oh, they are the Brangelina of 1937, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that they adored, and how could they not? Because um, that hadn't really been around before. I mean, they were the they were the glam couple of yeah. you know that period, um, but also had the talent to support it. And one of the things that really fascinates fascinates me about Vivian is because of um, her emotion emotional stuff was pretty raw. If I think when I look at a lot of her performances, they seem even more modern than some of the you know great performances of the day. Okay. And um, so I feel like you know, and then you know she's you know Gone with the Wind, Waterloo Bridge, and then she did of course Streetcar Named Desire, which she did with the Method actors or the actors who had gotten the credit, you know, been reputed to be part of that. Um, you know, Ilya Kazan is the director. But if you see her performance, she totally fits into that groove. And even though she didn't know to work that way, she hadn't been trained in that, she's using her she's using herself there. So to me, that's one of the great, what should be credited as one of the great method performances. And, you know, so in a way, she was method before method was the method. Okay. And, and story-wise for that, are you looking at her entire life or just a, a specific kind of period of time in her career? Um, period. But I mean, it's, it's a, it has a bit more of a... 
you know, a bit more of a year thing than, you know, let's say um, Few did. Right. But no, it's, but we're also bookending it. And it also has like a frame story, okay. you know, that, that takes place later. So, and, you know, we do sometimes show a little bit of the early stuff, but it's primarily, primarily the Olivier years, but it's really Vivian's story. I think that's really important. It's really Vivian's story. Because I think he, I think Olivier is fascinating, but he, I feel like he gets a lot of, you know, he's Olivier. <laughs> and, and you know, we sort of think of Vivian as a great actress, but a little bit more secondary. But she was actually she's extraordinary. One of the other projects that you're working on then is is an Agatha Christie yeah. adaptation, right? Yeah, it's a blast. Um, are you you're a big Agatha Christie fan? Oh uh, yes, they're so much fun. I mean, you know, I love puzzles and things like that. So the idea of you know figuring, like I said, I love figuring things out. You know, I love seeing what's behind the door. So I find that really fascinating. But I'd never thought of. It, being something that I would do, but you know, when we got suggested, you know, to possibly do um, one of the books, and then said we, you know, the pitch can be really use your imagination. It doesn't have to be completely, you know, by the numbers. You know, they were looking for these really fascinating adaptations, like you know, yeah. and we just kind of went for it. And you know, there was because there's a lot in there besides the great puzzles. There's also a lot of great stuff about class, and this one has really strong female characters. There's some really Wh- which interesting Which one is it you're adopting? Sparkling Cyanide, which has been done a couple of times, but I th- our version... And what I like about it, though, it's not one that everybody knows so well. It's not right. Murder on the Orient Express, or and they were none, which have both had you know really great adaptations. That and they and then they were none on television recently. It was really great. That yeah, and, and then they also did the ABC murders. I mean, I mean, yeah. is that a similar kind of model? If following what the BBC did with it over the kind of three well, how could you not be inspired or? by the work that you know Sarah Phelps has done, which is amazing? Yeah, who actually had a great. You know, I met on the train home. It was really great. <laughs> you know, from Galway, we were just both. We were all in Galway together, and it was it was fascinating. We were literally like, she, she turned to me. She said, "Were you just in? in, in were you just at the fish?" And I said, "Yeah." And then we were like, "Oh my God, it's Sarah Phelps!" And we were like, "I, I hear about you all the time in the meetings, <laughs> at the Agatha Christie, because you know she's the yeah. she's the gold standard." No, we you know ours is you know ours. Let's say has it has different locations. It's a present time story. Um, setting, but it's still very much Agatha Christie. And I, I really wanted to emphasize, I hope this works, you know, I, I think it's working, the characters. Yeah. And um, there's a love story at the center of it. And I really wanted this sort of romantic sense to it. I was kind of picturing like um, talented Mr. Ripley, if, if Brian De Palma had directed um, in Agatha Christie with a, with the cinematographer from the talented Mr. Ripley. That's an interesting mix. So well, um, in fact, actually, talented Mr. Ripley is being redeveloped as a TV series at the moment with Andrew Scott. Oh man, yeah. I cannot wait to see this. I wish. <laughs> why didn't I think of that? So um, uh, that is a great. I mean, it's it's a great. That's great IP. It's great. It's great. Yeah. You mentioned the Fish TV Summit, which you were a guest at last yes. week. Yes. And you were also here for Screen Skills Ireland's In the Writer's Room. Yeah, uh, that three-day seminar, which was workshop, I guess, yeah. which I loved. Uh, just in terms of, obviously, we, we, we won't get to any specifics yeah. about any of the projects that were there, yeah, but just absolutely. in terms of an overview, how did you kind of find the level that people were pitching projects at and what kind of, you know, caught your eye there? I think there's a lot. There's so much. The talent pool is really incredibly impressive. And people are really devoted and excited, you know, and really doing the work. And I love that. So there was there was so much. And even at um, Fish, you know, there were the pitch projects. There was a pitch, I guess, a pitch fest. Yeah. You know, and those were very impressive. 
And it was sort of like, oh, you know, these are projects, I, you know, there, there were so many projects that I wanted to see. Yeah, but it's, I really loved being able to talk to people about them and help them, I hope, you know, help them take a jump forward to realizing it. Because you, you do work with writers in New York as well, yes, at NYU and stuff as yeah. well. Is, is that an important thing for you to kind of feel yes. like you're giving back something like a little bit? Is it? Or is well, it? you know what? I actually have learned so much from teaching. I feel like in a lot of ways I've learned to think about story and to think on my feet more because I've had to do it so much in a classroom. You know, when everyone's looking at you and, you know, you have to, you have to look like you know what you're doing, <laughs> you eventually you have to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they'll bust you. So, yeah, so I think it's really important. And I, I mean, I guess it's giving back, but I, I really feel like I'm, I learn a lot and I'm always learning, learning, relearning. And whenever I have to articulate what my thought is or why, I think that idea is an important thing or to ask a question about that I hope will get them to where you know, they well, might want to go. That helps me. There was something you did in the room last week that I thought was interesting, which is, you know, after people had kind of pitched a project to you, the first thing you kind of asked was, what do we like? And normally, sometimes there's a tendency not to start there. People jump in with, I didn't like this, or I don't like that. Oh, my God. I grew up with a lot of, um, with, a, with a parent who was very critical. And so that used, to, that used to just, like, want me. I find that if I, I can hear the notes better or think about it, the questions better, if I know what's working, you know, what, or what, what, that, I, that there's something good there. I think that to go for what's, like some people, have, I know over the years I've had students tell me, don't worry, I can take it. Just tell me what's wrong. And I, I just think, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can hear it that way. I can't. Right. And I find that it makes a huge difference. I, I think it made a huge difference last week. To, oh, good. To, to I'm people's glad. approaches to it. Good, I'm glad. Because there, there were so many good things in them. So, you know, in the yeah. projects. You know, projects are always in development. They're, re- they're in development until the deadlines. You yeah. know, that's really the truth. Well, what's your own process with notes like from studio or, or mm-hmm. producers and stuff like do, do, you, do you have a kind of um, a method for dealing with them a particular method or uh, well you know you listen to them very much and then you you know while I'm listening to them I usually have like one part of, one part of my brain I'm definitely listening to it and trying to say don't worry you're not a horrible human being <laughs> and a complete failure um, and that's true I do you know those feelings I, yeah. I do struggle with feelings like that um, and then the other part, I, I'm, I'm often going to work already trying to figure out how to fix, how to fix, how to fix. And so that's that. And then, you know, we, my writing partner and I will then talk about, okay, what about this? How, you know, what do you think? And we'll, we really consider every, every note. And then, you know, as the ones that really resonate, you know, a really good note will open up something. And will really resonate. And often the other notes, not all of them, but most of the other notes will start taking care of themselves. Because the problem is usually something core that they're noticing or some story element that you didn't really look deeply into. Or you kind of covered up without realizing it, without really something. And then it usually, a lot of the other stuff often gets fixed. So if you can identify the macro, the, that really helps. And then the micro stuff that's kind of the micro stuff is kind of the fun stuff because that's that's easy you know and it's fun yeah and, and, and like I mean it, it's such an important thing I mean notes are such a key part of the process oh like as, God, as, so as you go along um, just I, I remember Joss Whedon saying something to me about like if you can't take the note from the person that you think is the dumbest person in the room mm-hmm. because it might actually be the idea that saves your script so true um, although and that's I, often me so, <laughs> <laughs> so it's often like yeah but yeah, but but I I, um, I I guess 
trying to learn how to deal with them is one of the skills that you acquire? You well, try not. I mean, the thing is, you also sometimes have to give yourself, if you have the luxury of it, you know, a day or two, yeah. you know, to really digest it and, and not feel whatever emotion you're feeling. If, if something hits you, if, especially if it's like one of your babies and they're like, yeah, no, that's not working. You're like, oh, come on. That's, you know, yeah. and you, you can't help but feel some of that. And sometimes it feels personal, but you can't, can indulge that because it's not. You know, and, and that that's definitely taken me some. That's been a really that's been a great lesson, a really okay. great lesson. What about have you ever experienced writer's block? Now I, I know writers who come from different points of view on this. Some people think it doesn't exist that it's a, mm -hmm. a mental state of mind that people are imposing on themselves. Some people find it to be a real kind of an issue from time to time. Um, I th I, you know, I I'm not going to say that I don't think writer's block exists, but I think there's a like everything, like like if you remember, I said in the room, there's a reason for everything. Every yeah. character, every every thing we do, is a choice or a struggle. And you know, I think writer's block is the the symptom of something that's of something else. And it's usually, you know, it's usually some sort of fear that and you're just really locked, you know, locked in there, and you don't, you can't see your way out of it. And yeah, so I do think it's real, but I think I don't think it's a magical thing. Like, oh, it's, I've been hit by writer's block, like I've gotten a bad flu. But I do think that there's, but I do, so I do think it exists, but I do think that there, it's basically fear of, oh my God, I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing, or I, I'm stuck, or, you know, yeah. sometimes when we're in fearful situations, everybody's mind works differently. Some people get confused, some people barrel through. You know, some so people, it's, it's, it's almost like a fight or flight response. Sometimes exactly. Just, yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Mm -hmm. But you know, part of the writing process sometimes is avoiding it. You know, even if you don't. No one prevaricates like a yeah, writer. Right? No, exactly. <laughs> and right, that's what we're all best at. You know, it's 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 confronting. You know, all the time. You're all, every line is like a, as I said, is it not? You know. Yeah. But it's but but you know, ultimately, it, it's fun. It's okay. it's great. We would probably get a lot of people who are writers listening to, to this podcast. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> would there be any particular advice? Because obviously one of the big focuses here for people at the moment is yeah. TV drama yeah. and creating original pilots. Are there any things that you think are absolutely essential, like a pilot must have one, two, three of these sure. elements to kind of work? Um, yeah, I think you really need to let the audience know what your show is, is both... Format-wise, um, thematically and stylistically. And most important, you need to really establish the character, and particularly your main character. Let's say you have one protagonist. Stories are different. Um, what that character's absolute need and desire and flaw is. Even if, you, even if the audience can't identify it yet, we need that thing that really draws us in. And I don't know if you remember in the workshop, I'm always like, character. It's all yeah. about character. It really is. That, 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 that's really what audiences latch onto in, in the TV show is character. I do, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my you God, yeah. Characters, so. You know, like, like Game of Thrones is a great example, again, of something that had a lot of characters. And if there's one character who, let's say, engaged you personally a little bit less, you know, you wait for the other one and it becomes like, it's like a thrill when they come back into the, you know, into the scene, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Is there anything that you would say you should not do in a, in a TV pilot? You know, there's, I'm, uh, uh, there's no, like, never do's. You know, I think that's, you know, you know don't, do, don't screw up. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I would say the one thing to never do 
I mean, is there is there such a thing? I, I think that the origin story pilot that then at the end of it, it's like okay, now it's going to be this. It'll be this type of show from now on. Doesn't work as well because I find that you know sometimes you get engaged in that so much, and then the show suddenly shifts or they don't know really where to go because a lot of times we have like okay, there's this great opening and then this happens and this happens. The backstory is great, yeah. but sometimes that's not enough. Because that, that's a little bit of what you were saying last week as well, about, about origin versus blueprint mm-hmm. in a pilot, right? Yeah. Can, can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, ideally, like I said, you, you know, I want to know what it is I'm going to be investing in, you know, as an audience member. Because time, you know, we all have, time is limited, and we yeah. want to make sure that what we're watching really engages us or inspires us or, you know, excites us. And so I want to know what the show is going to be like. I mean, I don't need to be, it knocked in my head and you know spoon fed, but I need to get a sense of what this is. So I so I think an, a great pilot episode would be something that both creates the world and sometimes you know it does have an element of an origin to it sometimes, but it also needs to be a blueprint of where I'm of what it is. So if this is you know, would, would you potentially have an example of a show that people could maybe watch and say that's a great pilot episode for that show? Like, oh, there's some well, Breaking Bad has such an amazing yeah. pilot because that really sets up, you know, what what he needs to do so badly in terms of why he needs to do it so badly emotionally, you know, what it is for him. Um, the stakes are really high. You know, he we sort of think, oh, he has no other choice. This, yeah. and we also see like what his flaw might be because you know he's. He's he's no he's no Scarface yet, you know. He's just this high school teacher. It's like the desperate need is set up. They also even set up the relationship, you know, that you know opposites, but we need each other. Relationship that's sometimes so key. A good relationship, setting up a great relationship that we'll invest in is really great as well. But yet it also sets up what the show is going to be, and you know they they do that thing that a lot of shows do, and I think it's a it's great you know when it works and it works 99% of the time which is when you start with like an event and you're like wait what's that and then you pull back and like you know how did this guy get there yeah. or woman or you know whatever yeah. and it's which great it's becoming quite a common conceit actually like, it is quite a common yeah. but you know certain, some things some things work you know I, I think back to this you know so I used to you know, a lot of times everyone always says oh we've seen that before it it only feels that way when it feels like we're relying on the cliche, right? You know, but when it's really organic, it doesn't feel that way. Is is there ever anything that you've seen and you've gone, "Oh my god, I wish I'd written that"? Oh yeah, <laughs> hell yeah, Fleabag. Oh my god, is <laughs> okay. you know season two particularly a Fleabag? Right. Oh man, I, I there are scenes in that that I I. I mean, you know, I, I once read somewhere somebody said, okay, after I saw that, I felt like, okay, I'm done. I, what can I do? I can't match that. And I have to say, I felt that about that. Really? I, well, I was, some of those scenes, were, they were so complicated. And yet, you know, one of the things I used to love when I was younger were, you know, I loved the old romantic comedy form, you know, the His Girl Fridays and, you know, or, you know things like that. I loved yeah. that. And I said, oh, I really want to, you know, the, and then the romantic comedy, you know, in a way it's kind of going through a period where it's not as, it's, it's not really as exciting right now. And I felt like she completely, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, completely nailed the modern romantic comedy with that story. You know, I was just, I was, wow. Do, do you think she's in that terrible position where she almost can't top it with no, no matter what she does next? Like, you know, people are going to be possibly disappointed or... Uh, you know, uh, that's a hard question to ask. But so far, you know, 
I mean, I think people, a lot of people felt that about the first season, and then she really topped it with the second season, which was brilliant. And Killing Eve is pretty impressive. And Killing Eve is great. Yeah. I'm totally looking forward to the James Bond, you know, her work on That's the James Bond film. That's going to be very film. interesting, yeah. actually, yeah. I, you know, she's smart, she's, comp, you know, complicated, and, you know, and there's just so many interesting things. No, you know, if they're disappointed, you know, screw them, they're wrong. <laughs> you know? Besides, everything's a process, and, you know, we all know, yeah. you know, I'm 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 interested in her work long term. I'll say that. Okay. In in terms of other writers out there that you really admire, who mm-hmm. who in the in the TV universe at the moment would be like? Oh my God, there's so many. That's a, that's such a good question. Well, you know what I have to say. Um, Succession is really great, and um, Ken Lonergan's work on that is fantastic. And you know, I, I really admired him as a playwright and a screenwriter. But right. I really I love the mix of comedy and drama and soap. You know, it's and great characters again. It's great as character and almost characters that when you start off with them, he's almost inviting you to hate them and actively dislike them. Yes, like. but you can tell that there's already something like you hate. Yes, they're hateable. Yeah, you know, and you don't approve of them in any way. But there is something there. There's the you know the the desire for dad to approve you. You know, to approve of you that you know it has that core yeah. you know primal stuff in there that that really gets us and it's fun. It has a fun that fun sort of pleasure element to it of something, you know, a little big, a little big and glammy. You know, there's, there's nothing we like more than beautiful, glamorous people being miserable. You know, <laughs> it was true. I don't know, I find that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, all of my earliest memories of American television are kind of like everything happened in this glorious, beautiful L.A. sunshine, which was completely different oh, to, yeah, to yeah. Every, everything that happened out here, looking out the window. Oh, no, but, and, and yet, I, and I'm not from L.A., I'm from New York, but I love the windswept, you know, um, rainy, I, I've always loved that. Oh, you should come here and make some I, more. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I would in a second. You know how much I love Ireland yeah. and how important Ireland is to me, yeah. you know, and has been to my family as a New York Jew. It really has. <laughs> but it has. You know, we've spent a lot. I've spent a lot of time here. I love it. P- potentially, uh, I suppose, because it has become a global industry, there is the potential of having a project here somewhere down the line in the future. Fantastic. Um, what a great place. You know, what a great place to. There's so many types of stories here. You know, look, this is this is the country of you know that's that has so many amazing writers. You know, uh, let's have TV, you know. I think we probably already have a bunch. You know, TV writers who ho- you know hopefully will be the Brendan Behans and the you know, James Joyce's of of RTE. <laughs> wow, uh, that, that, well that would be amazing for sure. If there was one, if there was one last thing, is, I, I don't know if there is or isn't. Like, w- is there one piece of advice that you always give that you think? If you don't do anything else, mm-hmm. this is the one thing that you kind of need to do. That's a good question. I think keep digging and dig into yourself too. I think, you know, I, I feel like, um, I think the question is always why. Why? Always ask why. Don't accept the surface thing. I, I feel like that's, that's, if there's one thing that I feel like Jaffe Cohen and I, do well that I'm excited is that we really keep pushing each other to ask well why well why does the character do that because sometimes you know you feel like oh I know what I'm doing I can I can pull that off and then the other one says well why are they doing it and then you go oh right and then sometimes it's, well they're doing it because of this yeah but why are they doing that so it always goes back to that and I think it's often something that gets put in there really early often before we can articulate it or 
you know, before sometimes even before we're pre-verbal. And I feel like something gets in there, and that, that often becomes like our shadow and our, you know. Yeah. If you could blue sky or anything, if you, if someone Netflix or somebody comes to you and say you can make whatever you want tomorrow, is there one project that you've kind of always had in the back of your head or something that you've always wanted to do? That's, oh yeah. Oh my uh, God, there's a list. But um, right now, other than projects that I'm already doing, I would say the project that comes to mind is I've been obsessed with Mama Cass Elliot for years. And I just think she is the most wonderful, complicated character. And particularly her story after, well, actually even during the Mamas and the creation of the Mamas and the Papas, but the story afterwards, really moving. And she's, you know, she's gotten a bad shake. People make fun of her about the ham, you know, dying from the ham sandwich, but that's not the truth. There's a lot more going on there, and okay. I would just love to do her story. And that would be kind of a limited kind of thing again? Or no, I, I could be a movie. It could be a limited series, you know, a, a four-parter. I, I have I have it in my head of two, of either way to do it, um, and I will I would do it in two seconds. It's I, I, I yeah I just I find her there's this way in which I just I just she just gets me and her music of course is fantastic. Her that voice that voice it's so clear and it comes you know and it's not it's not a voice that's like you know it's not like a huge voice but yeah. it's just so there's something so just real about it it just really gets me and the, vulnerable the, there does seem to be something in that space at the moment I mean you, you know the genius thing that, yeah. that they're doing oh they're, yeah they're doing Aretha Franklin's yeah I know well. oh I know um, no I think that's yeah because I, I don't know music and television seem to have kind of crossed over there quite a bit like well in, you know that's I'm someone who also grew up loving musicals and you know, grew up with them and yeah. has worked in them somewhat and there's the idea of mixing I've the idea of music has always has always been a very important part to me when I've seen things even like some of the like you know foreign language little foreign language films I loved growing up I loved the work of like Georges I, I hope I know I'm not saying this right so I apologize Georges <laughs> Delarue Georges Delarue yeah yeah you know like his music for Truffaut with the Nino Rota stuff yeah you know with the Ennio Marconi like even stuff that's not like songs or even the old, you know, old movies, musicals, you know, Singing in the Rain is one of my favorite movies. But it, it does seem even since like La La Land that it's kind of opened. It, like, there was a show that debuted on, on Netflix over Christmas called Soundtrack. I don't know yeah, Soundtrack. Called. I haven't caught that yet. It's um, a really good idea. Though. It, it is. And, and there, there were some really unusual uses of music in terms of like on-screen performance, dance, choreography, mm-hmm. and as part of the storytelling. Which yeah. I, I thought was you know really interesting way to go, and maybe that's something that we're going to yeah. see more of. Well, more look, how my, do you remember the old Dire Straits song? It's like making movies. You know, the character's skating and she's listening to headphones, and yes. she's like making movies in her head as she's. Yeah. I felt like that all the time when I used to walk down the street. You know, it's like oh, here I am. You know, music in my head, and I, I'm in my movie. And so if we all think like that. I think. So a Michael's Arm musical then is not too far away. Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. That was really fun.